Sales experience is one of the biggest drivers and who is the person that sets the sales experience for the entire organization? That's the SDR. The SDR is the front line, the person who is holding the standard for every organization. They're the first person that many people will engage with. That's how I want my SDRs to see themselves. They should be proud going into battle. They should, every time they pick up the phone, they're like, here. Whatever the logo is on the shirt, like I'm proud to be here and I'm gonna have this conversation, I'm gonna rock it. And then what we'll find is the way their kind of values and beliefs play out and the capacity and skill and the behavior, it can only help impact the result. This is Reveal. Revenue Intelligent Podcast, here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing. Stop guessing. If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your full potential, then this show is for you. I'm Danny Wasserman, coming to you from the Gong Studios. Ladies and gents of the Reveal audience, listenership, sphere, wherever you may find yourselves, are you ready for this next guest who's here to pump you up yes it is not the governor no arnold schwarzenegger has not taken our phone calls but we do have someone who in fact in addition to being the director of sales training at finastra that european juggernaut in the fintech space this guest dan story in addition to being a top-notch sales trainer is a professional bodybuilder I'm not making this stuff up anyways why is dan in the reveal studio well he's here advocating for what we all need in life to survive and you may be thinking food water shelter well yes we need those things too but no dan is getting back to how humans communicate in an era where we're constantly swiping constantly being pulled in different directions by tiktok and instagram and whatnot well dan wants us to be able to return to our roots as human beings because he is an expert in the art of asking questions Pulling service of moving conversations towards a stronger relationship with our customers, hopefully closing more deals and winning. So why is he an expert? Well, Dan's bringing this unique scientific perspective to how we communicate. And he calls this neuro-linguistic programming. What we abbreviate as NLP. No, this is not natural language processing. Neuro-linguistic programming. Demystifying what the heck that is even meaning. And what with the natural communication patterns that our brains crave, how we can reposition, modulate, rejigger our communication styles to ultimately win more. I'm super excited, given that he's a fellow Dan, that he's coming to the studio and pumped to see what you take away from NLP. TJ? Holy smokes. In the Reveal Studios today, we have, sure, a fellow namesake of mine. Yes, a fellow Dan. But we have so much more than just a fellow Dan, which would be marginalizing this gentleman's talents in pursuit of bringing a wider, yes, wider geographic representation of perspectives to reveal. Dan comes to us, I mean, today, technically, he comes to us from California, but typically he does reside across the Atlantic, over the pond, in the land where a recent coronation marks, yes, the heir of a new monarchy, but we're not talking about King Charles. No, we're talking about Dan. Dan Story, the director of sales at that juggernaut of a fintech provider, Finastra, a man who has worn many hats, but who is now talking to us about not the NLP you may be thinking in all the hype and popularity of generative AI. He's going to tell us about his NLP and how he's really trying to unpack and dissect the art of conversations. Dan, welcome to Reveal. Danny, that was a big intro. I'm still waiting to see who you're going to bring in it. And then it relates to me. Wait, no, that wasn't even my intro. 
No, no, no. That was just me warming up, oh, man. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So here comes the intro. One thing that I wow. failed to mention as a fellow Dan, you too have your own podcast. So now I feel like a raging imposter. Now all of my tricks are totally up. The gig is up. I'm going to have Freudian slips right and left because you're making me nervous. Oh, Danny, we're going to get through this together. Or like I say, it's like you say, namesakes. We've got each other's back. And this is going to, this is going to be an amazing quarter. And I'm excited. You know, for me, NLP or neurolinguistic programming, as we're going to talk about, this is something that I studied so many years ago, but I think is looping back into popularity and not even popularity, but importance. We're going to talk today about conversational intelligence, which, you know, I know you guys know plenty about, but actually the people that are trying to have conversations don't. It's like this irony that we're trying to have more conversations, but we're losing the skill and the art of having these conversations. And there's probably some kind of gap in terms of knowledge or skill or talent or whatever it is that's creating these gaps and is technology helping or hindering? I don't know. So I think this is where we're going to go and have a little, little dive into the deep end and see what happens. As the name of this podcast suggests, yes, let's reveal that a gap exists. Do we have a smoking gun? And if so, how do we get past that? So it's not natural language processing as maybe you might think it is, but no, it is Dan Story's NLP. So help us understand what is technology doing for us or against us to trigger this gap as you said. Danny, I'm going I'm to look at you and this is a family show, so I'm going to try and keep it as, as colorful within the boundaries as possible, right? But me and you are okay. of a certain age, right? We're, we're at that age where we've already had to ask somebody for a date, right? We had to have that, have that awkward moment, right? Where maybe you're in a disco, we said disco, oh my goodness, how old am I? Right? And you have the music playing, you've been looking at a girl or guy or whatever, it's across the floor. You've got to build a confidence, go and instigate a conversation from nowhere, right? This is, this is the kind of craziest thing. And, you know, people would have to do that. Or we'd go to networking events and we'd have to introduce ourselves to people and say what we did. And, you know, just this whole thing where conversations had to be created from nowhere. And I think there's a lost art, right? There's a lost art. And, you know, the things like Tinder. And I was chatting to some teenagers today. This is the craziest thing today. Teenagers, they're in high school in the States. That say there are now dating apps for teenagers. Teenagers. Like, so they can literally just go on and, and this, you know, this, this kind of swiping thing negates the need for conversation. Because if we can take away that need for that awkward in, in, indulgence in conversation at the beginning, if we can remove the opportunity for people saying no or rejection or any of those things, is, and then we could just copy and paste something into the, to kind of the gap to try and instigate those conversations. Where does the actual conversational ability come from? And if we look at sales, the reason I like this, mm -hmm. and especially in a sales context is, if you look at what buyers are looking for, what buyers are looking for is real engagement and, and genuine empathy and understanding. And what we're trying to push down their throats is swipe uh, AI generated caption or something along those lines. And so that for me, there just seems to be this complete mismatch of what buyers are looking for and what salespeople are, are trying to push in front of. So when we talk about calibrating what buyers want and expect versus where our skill set exists, are you insinuating with all due respect for our, whether it's millennials on down to Gen Z's, or if it's, again, we're now talking to the teenagers who are listening, are we stunted as a byproduct of the stickiness of this infernal smartphone device that, you know, Steve Jobs and Tim Cook have been so clever and making addictive, but I don't know, unexpected or inadvertent consequence is that we have lost our ability 
to relate together as human beings. What do you make of that? I think the technology doesn't help. I think there's there's a reliance on okay. tech speak and abbreviation and, and getting things over as quickly as possible. But, you know, we get into a flow. We can do that with people we're in rapport with. But until we've got a rapport, then, you know, it's, it's a real challenge to, to kind of lead with a gift. I do like gifts. We can come back to those in a minute. But what I think as well is on top of that is actually what we see in sales is the pressure. Like people are pushing numbers up, right? And I think there is a balance. There is a balance. As we're expecting numbers to go up, there has to be a scaling of some kind. And so I don't think, I'm not just going to purely blame it on the smartphone, but I am seeing like this pressure to, to drive a numbers game in a way to scale. So for me, there's got to be a way. How do we scale, but still have personality? How do we still have connectivity done through a conversational way? So I'm not going to blame everything on technology, but I'm, I'm sure it's in there as a, as a culprit. And what you've identified is this paradox of quality and quantity. And because we have in our audience of listeners at Reveal, we've got executives and we've got early in career lead gen specialists, BDRs and SDRs. And I'm wondering what advice do you give both of those groups? And maybe it's not, you know, one size fits all, but for, you know, the executive who's probably being pitched and they don't just want to be a swipe, swipe, swipe recipient of that outreach. And yet here they are in a contradictory manner, demanding that that's what their internal teams do. Well, okay, how do we reconcile that? And then I guess the twofer part of this is, well, if I'm, you know, part of this generation that has only ever known, if we stick with the dating analogy, how to meet someone without having to interface with them other than, do I feel some primal carnal attraction or appeal to you? Well, where do these people if they're no longer presented socially and societally with these opportunities, where can they learn how to, and I, I say this with all due respect, how to be a human? <laughs> all right. So could we start with the second part? Because I've got a fun story about that. So again, I've been, I'm, I'm as dumb as it comes. So I try and learn from some of the smart people I surround myself with. So if I kind of go way back, there was a guy called John who taught me this idea of a 10 by 10 matrix. And if you learn a 10 by 10 matrix, you can learn how to have conversations in any industry and become an expert within 10 conversations. It's phenomenal. I thought, okay, well, this is pretty good. Show me how you do it. And so we would go, this is back in the day where we were selling digital advertising, right? And if you ever sold digital advertising to people over the phone, back in the day of the heyday, when everyone was trying to sell it, you knew it was a, it was a brutal space. Anybody who can sell advertising or recruitment, you cut your teeth somewhere. So we would call up and, you know, we would take people who are brand new to this space. And you have to have an angle, like number one, you have to have an angle. Say, hey, yo, I'm calling you up. Let's say I'm calling a dentist, all right? And we're trying to sell them advertising. Hey, my name's Dan. I'd like to sell you some digital advertising. What do you need? No, I'm not interested. Okay. <laughs> and to have some kind of just play as that. Look, yeah, forgive me. It's my first day. Hey, I don't even know anything about dentistry. Can you tell me something? What are the one or two things that you're already focusing on right now? And just ask that as a genuine question. Like to be surprised, to be surprisable, to be open to learning. What are the one or two things that you're really trying to work on right now? And, you know, I'm, this is my first day, help me out. So just say, look, you know, and then listen. You say, okay, well, you know, we're trying to work on this, trying to attract in the world of dentistry, it'd be more cosmetic patients or trying to get more kind of families involved. Great. Thanks very much. No more of your time. The second call is you say, okay, well, hey, you know, I'm a consultant. I work with dentists. What we're finding is dentists now are trying to do one of two things. Help me out. This thing's down for you, is it? You know, most of them are trying to find more cosmetic patients or trying to find families. Is that something you're trying to work on? And then all of a sudden, you're like, oh, okay, well, yeah, sounds interesting. I say, okay, well, I like something dubbed. 
And then basically, if you do that, if you do that enough times, how many calls are like that? Is it going to take for you to sound interesting or at least sound like an, an expert mm-hmm. or something? And so this is one way of doing it. And we did 10 because we had multiple verticals that we were working in. But it's just going through that process of saying, hey, let me ask you a question. And then leaving every call with a bit of information that allows you to make the next call a little bit more interesting. And so if you're an SDR, like for me, one of the key secrets to an SDR is organization and time management, the day management. And actually saying, okay, well, if I hack my work on a campaign, okay, and if I work on a campaign, let's say I've got a bunch of leads, I don't know how many leads, let's say 100 leads, okay? How can I segment that group in a way that if I take a, a small section of it, I can build my conversation over time and get better and better and better. So by the end of those conversations, if I'm, I'm like, I'm really going, like I'm, I'm an expert, I've learned something from everyone you and all that is is through listening. It's not trying to be perfect. Nobody wants perfect. Danny, if I came to you and I said something that was so perfect, sounded so scripted and sounded like I said it over and over again, inherently you're going to have a mistrust. You're not going to like what I say. There's going to be something in it that sounds just too slimy. But if it sounds like I'm genuinely listening and trying to get something from you and, and not like manipulating it, but generally interested in hearing your opinion, but I have something to share as well, now we can have a conversation. And what I find is SDRs right now are trying to spend too much time prepping, trying to get all of the information and not enough time prepared to ask questions they don't know the answer to, you know? So they have to ask this question, open up, feel some sense of like, I don't know where this is going, but knowing how to handle the responses that come in. And so it's that kind of, that kind of ability to asking questions, prepared to know the answer and then asking follow-up questions that take the conversation long. What you've just described is, you know, again, we're still probably in like question, you know, two of one. So we'll, we'll come back to sort of what we tell our executives momentarily. But before I forget, let's double click into this idea of for early in career lead gen specials, SDRs, BDRs, you've just described a situational agility that doesn't have a script. It is unscripted. It is a level of confidence in the unknown. How am I going to pick and roll in the shades of gray that no one can tell me? how and when they're going to unfold. Hey, like how do you train someone to be agile? Is that just enough time in the saddle where they realize they're going to put their foot in their mouth so many times and then the sun still rises and they put their pants on the same way? Or like, is that how we through osmosis cultivate a willingness to live in the ambiguity of that gray? Or how do you bring people to a state where they can accept and celebrate? It sounds completely open. It sounds like there's no structure to this at all, but there is a structure. Let me ask you a question. Here we go. Yeah. It's a trick question. It's the only trick question I'm going to ask you, Dan. Um, yeah. What is the best kind of question? Is it an open question or a closed question? Now I'm going to I'm going to let you off the hook. There you go. There you go. What well up for following up on that? Because most most salespeople say the open question is best, right? The open question is best. The salespeople yeah. were drawn into this for every single sales training. Ask open questions. Ask open questions. Why? Because it gets them talking. If we're in outreach, we don't have a relationship. We don't have rapport. We don't have permission to ask open questions yet. My first question to you is, yeah. hey, Danny, you know, tell me your 10-year goals. I'm like, sorry, I don't have time for this. Wait, and you're going to get hung up? Yeah, who the hell if are I you? Ask you a, yeah, right. If I ask you a binary question, yeah? And let's go back to that dentist example. Hey, help me out, Danny. Which one are you working on most? Are you working on um, the cosmetic patients? Are you trying to get more families into your practice? Like, you can answer that one really quickly, right? It's like this or this. And if you're an SDI, you're smart, right? You prepare a follow-up for each of those scenarios. Okay, great. Cosmetics. Okay, in that case, here's the follow-up value proposition. Okay, interesting. Finally, here's the follow-up value proposition. You've really only got to prepare 
two follow-ups. And then you kind of create that little binary yeah. chain until you can ask a couple more questions. You qualify and say, okay, well, great. Let's take this further. Let's move on to discovery. And then we actually look to close down towards the meeting and add some value into it. So you only really have to ask two. So, but here's the third one is so I say, you know, cosmetics or family. And you say, well, actually it's neither. It's this. Well, guess what? You just got a massive amount of engagement that you probably wouldn't have got from asking an open question. And in which case, yes, you do have to have some situational flexibility. Goes, oh, great. And all you, but it's the same thing as you say, okay, well, hey, that's new. We've not heard of people doing that, but hey, listen, this is what we're doing. So you still lead in with a value proposition. So by closing the questions down, you actually have a lot more control of the situation. So, you know, yes, it seems like situational flexibility, but actually if you craft it in that way, that it's just a binary question and you can either go this way or this way. As a kid, I love those choose your own adventure books. You remember those? Like, you know, you yeah, come up to totally. a bridge as a troll under, do you fight it or do you run over the bridge? It's like, I'm going to do I'm going to do this one. You've only really got a couple of options. And so as long as you can think about which of those options you want to take, prepare and plan for those resources, but know that there's a third option that could go a little bit colorful, but in which case you've got engagement, it's perfect. Then that kind of closes the gap a little bit. You don't have to have every answer possible. Well, I think that that lends itself to a, a fresh and novel perspective, Dan, on closed questions that early in a sales cycle, at the top of the funnel, you don't want to pigeonhole yourself with closed questions because you should unearth every possible angle and things that even you wouldn't expect to ask with an open question. It's not to say that there isn't a time and a place for that open yeah. question, but you're giving more credence to arriving at that juncture, having sequenced the appropriate categorical closed questions. I, I, I love that, man. I do want to come back because I think that we are at the precipice of a generational pivot regarding the talent and the competencies that we're seeing in a younger generation of seller sure. who's coming to market, yeah. which is, again, going back to this idea, what do our executives have at stake if we don't train our salespeople with this situational agility? If we don't go back to, again, to your, you know, I'm at a bar and I don't know how to talk to someone. If we don't get that, what's going to happen? Because for the execs that are listening, I want them to come away with too. Holy cow. Thanks for the blueprint, Dan, for how I get my people back to a state where they're not purely relying on the swipe effect. So this is difficult. Let's go back to your point earlier about AI. Is AI, and this is the, the big question out there, is AI going to take over the role of the SDR? And I think the answer is yes. Uh-huh. For the bottom 50%. You heard it here. <laughs> But this is the, I'm, I'm going to borrow, I think, Seth Godin. Seth Godin said this best, and he says many things better than, than many people. But he says, AI is going to take the mediocre. And anything up to the mediocre is going to be replaced by AI. Because, you know, I can take an average call script. I can AI my own voice. Like, literally, we've seen that in the music industry, right? People coming out with songs by other people with lyrics that they haven't learned. I can automate it through some kind of dialer I can put into some form of, outreach cadence template, I can actually take the mediocre SDR and I can replace that with technology today. I can do that with many industries. So if all you need is a mediocre SDR, then you don't need an SDR at all. You probably do the rest of the technology. But let me ask you a question. If you're a high value, high security, high integrity, like you're dealing with the best people, trying to have conversations with some of the best people in the industry, like mediocre probably isn't going to cut it. So I think those SDRs are very mm -hmm. safe. <laughs> and I don't think that they have anything to worry about, but you have to aim over mediocre. Okay, so what does that mean? What does that mean? That means value add. We have to be able to add value in a situation. 
Okay. And how do we do that? Well, we've got to be informed. Okay. We have to know, and what do we need to be informed about? Do we need to know everything about the industry? No, right. That's not our job. Our job is to sell our product, which is a solution to the problems to the industry. Okay. So at the moment, working with Finastro, we sell banking software. Okay. We sell software into banks. Do we need to know the banking world? We need to know contextually, but we don't need to know the world of banking. We need to know software for banks. Okay. So know the value that you bring. You don't need to know everything, but you need to know the context in which you fit. And when I say context, you need to know what else is out there. Okay. So that's the way we need to know the value. So talked about domain knowledge, understanding where we fit. That's where SDRs want to play. It's like, how can we add value in there? Also hear a lot about challenger sale, massive fan of the challenger idea. But who was I talking to the other day? This idea that, you know, I'm waiting for a 23 year old to come along and tell me what my job is. Cause I haven't been doing it well all this time. <laughs> That's not it. Right. So we're not challenging people to say they're wrong, but we should be bringing new insights. Okay. Insights, new data, new research. What are we finding in the market? Again, we're working with a lot of banks. We've got like 10,000 companies globally. We've got insights that we can share. Hey, Mr. Customer, Mr. Customer, Mr. Prospect, here's some data. How do you compare to these trends? Like, let me challenge you. Let us see which side of this line you fit. So that's what we can bring. And it's actually challenging people to say, look, you know, you do better. Here's some insights in what we're seeing. Would you like to know more? And so that's what we should be bringing. We should be bringing data. We should be bringing insights. We should be bringing benchmarks. Yeah, we should be bringing stories about how mm-hmm. things could be done. We shouldn't be just saying, hey, you know, we're the latest funding this, that, and the other. That's that's what we want to bring. So I think what SDRs will do well is number one, identify those insights, those value add pieces. And then number two is just be able to communicate them humanly. Like, hey Danny, you know, um, help me out. You know, we're seeing a lot of businesses are having these challenges, these challenges. Which one of these are you at? Okay, great. Yeah, we're hearing that. No, help me out. This number is here. Are you above this line or below this line? But that's the simple follow-up, right? So, okay, well, great. So two closed questions and great. I've already qualified you into whatever conversation we're going to have. So that's not, so that's not a massive communication challenge, but it does take confidence to, to plan it. When it comes to sales, it all boils down to effective communication. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, duh, of course, that's going to help us build strong relationships with customers. But I want to add to this obvious truth what McKinsey found which is this. Organizations that leverage customer behavioral insights outperform their peers by 85% in sales growth and perhaps more importantly, a 25% delta in gross margin, all through active listening, empathizing, and effectively communicating. Well, what's the key for successfully nailing that customer relationship paradigm? Dan says it can all be found in NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. It's through NLP that sales professionals can establish trust and rapport, which leads to those sales outcomes we all desire. Now let's get back to our conversation with Dan and hear from the expert himself. No doubt. Well, Dan, you've had the luxury of studying extensively neuro-linguistic programming. And for folks who are hearing this other NLP for the first time on the episode, can we get a dance story, neuro-linguistic programming for dummies. Like, <laughs> hey, like, I'm going to listen to this episode and then I'm going to go start hitting the phones again. What are some of the like low-hanging fruit, tactical foundational building blocks to NLP that we should and we can realistically apply tomorrow? Okay, cool. So I'll, I'll go way back. A friend of mine, very good friend of mine, handed me a, a, a CD. This is back how old it was. 
a CD said, Hey, listen to this. I think it's going to help. And at the time I was training, I was in fitness. I was, I was working with fitness people and I was kind of training athletes and stuff. And he said, this, this mindset stuff, I think it will help you. Okay, cool. So it was really interesting. It was about goal setting. It was about self kind of communication and what you say to yourself and what kind of goes on in your mind and all these things. Like, oh, that's really interesting. As I kind of got into it and started studying it more, the company that I was working with, they had a, a business application. They said, oh, go and teach this to salespeople. Oh, this is brilliant. Salespeople definitely need to know it. I didn't realize at the time that salespeople didn't want to know it. They need to know it. <laughs> they didn't want to know it. They just want to learn sales. Yeah. Um, so I guess over the years, I've tried to figure out how to deliver this undercover. But effectively, neurolinguistic programming is, is a language that allows you to de decode communication patterns that other people use, if you think about it that way. So, you know, it's uh, Bandler and Grinder back in the... Uh, I think it was the eighties. They kind of looked at therapists and, and amazing communicators and said, oh, how do they do what they do? How do they, how do they create persuasion? How do they influence people? How do they create rapport? How do they do all these things? And there was a set of techniques and there was a set of kind of underlying concepts. but let's kind of look at a few of them. So number one, kind of some of the big ones are that we all have different communication pathways or preferences or something like that, ways of mm -hmm. filtering the information that we get. In NLP, they're called metaprograms. There's so many different personality profile types. They're all based on Jungian theory. You won't go into the science too much. People will fall asleep. You know, we won't go into that. But understand that the yeah. way me and you communicate versus the way that somebody else on the other line communicates is different. Now, whose job is it to change communication power? Mm. It's the salesperson, right? It's the salesperson. So because we need to be chameleons. We're going to be talking to multiple different people about the same thing. We need to have multiple different ways of communicating the same thing. So if I say something to you, Danny, and you know, I use the same joke that I use in every situation, but it doesn't land, whose fault is that? Well, clearly it's you because you have a terrible sense of humor. <laughs> but if I look at it as a salesperson. Yeah, you're hysterical. I, That's right, Exactly. Yeah, I laugh at all my jokes. It's one more for one always. But if I'm a salesperson, I need to adjust my communication style. So in NLP, there's this concept of the meaning of communication is a response you get. If I don't get the response I want from communication, I need to look at how I've communicated that. So there's an innate responsibility on communicating that allows me to do it. And the only way I can do that is if I'm aware of my own tendency. So for me, here's what I know. Number one, I speak too fast. But luckily we're on a podcast. You could probably slow this down if, you know, you need to listen to me a little bit slower. But I also know that I communicate at a very high kind of big picture level. I don't really go into the details. Like that's one of my tendencies. So if I'm training people or I'm speaking to people, I'll have a tendency to gloss over that. And there's a lot of people that actually not know I need to know the details there. Like, so for me, sometimes I have to slow down and go into those details. I like to talk about, I guess, high level opportunities and less about the detailed procedure. And that will freak some people out. Some people are like, no, I need to know the step-by-step, play-by-play. And some people are like, just give it to me, big picture, we'll get there. We'll figure it out. And so understanding that. And again, it, you know, some of these are, are stereotypes, but if I'm dealing with someone who's very process-oriented, very numbers-driven, very factual, then maybe I need to change my communication process and the research and the information I use versus somebody who's big picture. And you can, you know, you can tend, tend to, oh, tell a lot about somebody by the role they take, and also the job title, but that's the kind of some stereotype. So I'd say that's number one. That's that's the big one is knowing your communication style and be able to flex that mm -hmm. to the person. And the other one is just um, what do I say? It's it's being goal oriented and knowing that everything is down to that. So set a goal, take direction, 
and then having the situational awareness to know if you're moving in the right direction. Right? That's it. Situational awareness. Like this, being open, taking in the feedback, and then figuring out, okay, well, if it's me and I'm going to be in control of this, and I need to adjust my direction by going this way. And we can do that on a macro. I, am I moving towards my sales goals this quarter? And we can do it on a micro, as in, is this conversation going it the way I want it to go? Right? And salespeople, yeah. genuinely, if, if you're in sales, you probably have pretty good sensory acuity. You know if something's going well. You know if something's landing or if it's not landing. It's like that awkward silence. Salespeople tend to, well, hopefully most of them pick up on it. Some of them tend to overspeak, and then they, they ignore that. So I say is that that ability to listen and to, to take in the information around you. So there's plenty of stuff we could unpack in there. Good for us to think about where to start with NLP. I want to ask you a question, given your vantage, having held and now holding a global role. Do the rules apply universally when you're in North America versus Europe versus APAC? And if not, how can we recognize the nuances of what governs NLP here may not necessarily apply as a carbon copy there? So the rules apply everywhere. Yes. Okay. But the application is different. So we can't take the, the fundamentalism framework, okay. um, but how you do it is, is different. So if you think about uh, challenger, right? So challengers as a methodology, if you think about it in, and I've done some training in APAC, you would not go into, say, a Chinese meeting or a meeting with a Japanese firm or something like that and say, you need to do something different because it would just not go down very well. Thank you. And then you can never hear again. In America, you probably have to say the same thing, but dress it up. So there's a lot of stuff at the front. Nice, 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 nice. And then you say it. And in, in somewhere like Germany, it's said before you even get into the meeting and then you're there and then you're just dealing with that. <laughs> so there's, there's lots of different ways of doing it, right? So some people are more or less abrupt. But what we're trying to do, and one of my favorite models from NLP is this idea of the neurological levels. Okay. And so if you think about what the challenger does, the challenger challenges a level of association or, or thought process. Okay. And typically we're challenging behaviors or results, which is the basic of the, the pillar, right? So if we think about this framework, go with me the framework, I'll try and send you an image and make it a little bit easier, but everyone's trying to change is results. Okay. And if from a training and enablement perspective, this is what I'm thinking about then this is what everyone's trying to change is the results. And the results are driven by behavior. Okay, so if you imagine behavior set above results, everything that we do to change behavior theory changes the results. We make more dials, we make more connections, we make more leads, okay? How do you change behavior? Well, if you ask somebody in training or enablement, you say, okay, we'll give them some more skills. Great, okay, so let's give these people skills, right? If they have skill, they will do behavior. If they do behavior, it sounds very robotic, right? But this is how we think, right? So skills equals behavior equals results. And most people will stop there, right? Especially from a training perspective. But we know this isn't the case, right? So there are loads of people out there who can cold call, who can pick up the phone, know how to do the dialing thing and know how to do that, but they don't do it. So why not? So we know inherently that there's something more at play. It's not just a, a capacity perspective, but it's a mentality perspective. So above this imaginary line is something called values and beliefs. Okay, values and beliefs says, Okay, what is it you're driven by and how do you think that plays out? Okay, so if value and belief is, or my value is stability and security, am I going to make a cold call where I get face rejection within three seconds? It's going to terrify me, right? 
rid of my value as entrepreneurialism or like just just drive and ambition, then I'm going to do that. I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to do it. I'm going to risk a little bit of rejection and adversity because something else is important to me. And so what we need to do is start playing with the mindset of people. So what are they driven by? What are they excited by? What are they motivated by? Not by money, but by opportunity, by drive, by challenge. How do we reframe that? Help them understand, steer them with their beliefs. So that actually then they'll go and find a way of doing all the behaviors, whether they're good at it or not. How many people do you know who are so inspired and motivated? They're terrible at cold calling, but they'll pick up the phone and make hundred dollars. <laughs> it's amazing. I just wish I could flip that round for the unmoved. And that ultimately comes to this idea of an identity. Okay. And an identity is, uh, I guess a bit more metaphorical. We kind of go into the fluffy zone of NLP. Sometimes I like to play with. Yeah. But it's how do you see yourself? Right. And, you know. Let's take SDRs, for example, because, you know, probably a lot of them listening to this. A lot of SDRs will see themselves as cannon fodder, you know, the, the, the foot soldier of the sales force, you know, the, the, the entry level soul sucking, we're going to drag everything out of you. You know, you are worthless, you are scum, that kind of welcome to the world of sales. Hi, you have to live here for three years until you earn the right to get an inbound lead. That kind of thing. And a lot of SDRs are like, I know what he's talking about, but. If we change the identity, if we change the identity, so stop looking at yourself, and you shouldn't look at yourself like that. SDR has such an important role. So we're going to move now. We're going to change the identity. And again, we go back to challenge yourself. What's the primary reason that people engage with a business to business? Like you've got price, you've got, you know, service, you've got cost value, but it's sales experience. Right? Sales experience is one of the biggest drivers. And who is the person at the cutting edge of sales experience? Who is the person? That sets the sales experience for the entire organization. That's the SDR. The SDR is the front line. The SDR is the person who's holding the standard for every organization. They are the person. They're the first person that many people will engage with. That's how I want my SDRs to see themselves. They should be proud going into battle. They should, every time they pick up the phone, they're like, here. Whatever the logo is on the shirt, like, I'm proud to be here and I'm going to have this conversation. I'm going to rock it. Absolutely rock it. And then what we'll find is the way their kind of values and beliefs play out and the capacity and skill and the behavior, it can only help impact the results. And so what a lot of people will do is try and move that identity. So we can still use the same thing because again, if I come in the challenger, how do I apply the challenger? Yeah, it might be different across the different regions. But if I think about that, that mm -hmm. psychological shift, I'm trying to change results by changing behaviors, behaviors by changing skills and capacities. But really what I'm trying to do is get into the mind and get people to make this transition from here to here, right? This is where you are. This is where you want to be. Let's just open that gap and have a conversation about what that gap could look like. Like we can have that conversation nice and easy in any language you want. And to think about the tendency to, for lack of a better term, marginalize the progression of competency or skill to behavior to result. When you're now shedding a ton of light and emphasis on values, I couldn't help but think about Simon Sinek's The Golden Circle of Why. Yeah. And for listeners who haven't watched that eight, nine minute YouTube clip, the for Simon, and I think, again, call bullshit on this, Dan, if you don't agree, but the parallel here is that those companies who are able to lead in the market with why they do what they do, rather than what it is that they sell and how is it built or how does it function, it is those companies that really pride themselves on who we are existentially. Why do we exist as a company? They outperform 
they're non-value driven or value centric peers. I don't know if you have any reactions to that. Um, I'm a big fan of that. And there's a book called The Game. Okay. <laughs> by, I think it's Neil Strauss. He's written a couple of others since The Game. I, I can confirm <laughs> it is by Neil Strauss. Um, <laughs> and the reason, the reason I'm being a bit coy about it is because it's a slightly old book in the realm of pick street. And Neil Strauss teaches the exact same thing as Simon Sinek. And he calls it value alignment or something along those lines. And this this idea that rapport is not matching a mirror. Like me and you, Danny, we could stand here across our arms or, you know, we could do whatever, touch our chin at the same time and things like that. And that's, you know, if, if you listen to the, the pickup artists and the NLP trainers of old, that's what they'd say. So try and build rapport by crossing your arms, crossing your legs at the same time and brushing your nose when they scratch. It's weird. It's just freaking out. But that's behavior, right? That's the behavior level. Now let's yeah. go up. Let's go into that values and beliefs. And this is where Thomas and Nick is talking about it is value alignment, value matching. If our values are the same, we're going to have rapport. We're going to have rapport. And I think he uses Apple, right? He's, you know, he's saying that challenge, Correct. challenge the status quo. Okay. If you have this idea, the value, this drive internally to challenge the status quo, you're going to connect to other people that challenge status quo. That's what you're trying to do. And so this is smart, right? Is if you lead with that messaging, if you lead with that messaging, here's what we're trying to do. This is our calling. This is where we're trying to go. Join us. Yeah. People won't even ask how we're getting there. They're just like, yeah, I'm on. I mean, let's go. <laughs> and so, but you know, as you know, in that golden circle, it's like, oh yeah, we're this technology company or we have this widget or something along those lines is like, do you want to buy one? It's like, I'm not really inspired. And I think this is, this is one of the challenges we're seeing is people in, in the economy right now where it's scary. It's like, can I really sell dreams? Surely I should go on a logical, you know, detailed sales process. Let's make sure I've got all the boxes ticked, you know, very logical sale, but we forget that people still make emotional decisions. And the way you tap into emotion is you go higher, 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 right? The way that sales are made, and this is what Apple did really well, is they say, look, if you're this person, I'm going to create this gap. And this is, so here's where you are. You want to inspire. Here's the way you do it. Right. And so what Apple have done really well is you, you, you inspire change by doing this and creating like that, that uh, this pull effect, uh, I want to be part of that. So that's what they've done really well. I think there's a few brands that have done that pretty well. And it does cost you to be there, but people still find a way of doing it, right? So I think, yeah, understanding how that is unpacked. And again, going, go to values level and, and, and you know what value, value right? It, and science is a bit, again, I love the word fluffy and I feel I'm perfectly qualified to use it. You might have time I've spent in this area, but a value is nothing more than what someone is motivated or doing by. And it's usually, it's a one word or a two word phrase. It can be something very simple, but if you can understand that, then you can understand everybody's, all the decisions they'll make to just. There you go. Dan, I could continue down what other companies beyond Apple have exemplified their mastery and command over the golden circle, as well as maybe we didn't even realize that they were ninja assassins and NLP, but keeping an eye on the clock, I want to wrap with our last question and for listeners of the podcast you know what's coming dan as i believe you've heard an episode or two of reveal you should know what i'm going to hit you between the eyes with momentarily but as is custom to wrap up every episode dan's story if you were to describe sales in just one word what would it be wow um i think my the word i've used over the years would have changed i think if i if i'd used a word historically it would have been a bit more, I would have been a bit more fluffy. I would have gone a collaboration or something. I don't think it's a collaboration. I think it should be, but I don't think it is. Where is sales at the moment? 
sales is can I use a can I use a conjoined word? Am I allowed to kind of com combine a few words? Or is it going to be? You would not be the first person to cheat the rules and hyphenate. So if you need <laughs> to, you know, resort to punctuation. We have loopholes that there's a precedent for. Okay, I'm going to say sales is a passionate pursuit of a solution, and that's whether the person wants it or not. Like this is a, so yeah. I'm going to unpack that, but passionate. Because I think you have to believe in what you sell. I, I think there's a lot of people out there don't, and it shows, and it shows the numbers, and you're not going to be there long. So if you can, sell something you like, or do you buy into, or that you would buy as a consumer. It's a pursuit. There's a hunt, right? There's a chase. There's an element of that, and you have to love that, right? To love the pursuit. Because people aren't going to make it easy for you, right? If it was easy, then, oh, can you like to buy it? Yeah, great. It's not. An amazing buddy of mine says, it's when we hear no, that a salesperson goes to work. That's why I say, like, if you go into McDonald's, like, or a burger joint, is the person on the desk a salesperson? A lot of people say, yeah. Okay, like, oh, why? Because they ask questions like, would you like fries without something like that? And the question I say is, what happens when you say no? They say, let me ring that up. They don't pursue. They don't challenge. It's just they take the order. So they do some of the things that sales do, but they don't pursue. So it's a passionate pursuit of a solution. And that's what sales is. Everything that we sell is a solution to some form of problem. Now, as a consumer or as a buyer, do I know what that problem is? Not always. And that's why people hate salespeople. It's because before you called me, Danny, I woke up today, the sun was shining, and everything was beautiful. Picked up the phone, you called me, you asked me a couple closed questions that quickly got you to the solution that you needed to talk to me about. And I went from having no problem to suddenly having a problem. Yeah. And the only thing that changed was the salesperson came into my life. <laughs> so I think it's that. It's a passionate pursuit of a solution. And I think if you can have that as a salesperson, it will give you real courage and confidence to go after every single call you make. And a rejection is a rejection of you. It's just a rejection of the scenario situation that they're currently in, right? They don't even know you. They can't reject you. Yeah. So call up again, like 20 minutes later, when they're better the coffee's kicked in. But yeah, I go with that. I don't know how that compares to other answers, but final answer, passionate pursuit of solution. As someone who's asking for their answer to be compared to others, you must be in sales, must be validated. Yours is the best. No one else compares to your answer. Yes. The PPS from Dan's story. Well, Dan, I can't help but just thank you for the numerous ways in which you've reframed conventional or typical or just tempting understandings that we societally have cultivated and embraced for better or for worse. And what you've challenged us to do differently, even with a, instead of one word answer, a three word answer. Yes, a you know, passionate pursuit of a solution. I just appreciate that here you are very scientifically, but effectively rattling the cages of these old standards of how this profession can be done. And the word that I'll close on, if you find yourself in sales and you are passionate in pursuing a solution, that takes courage. And I hope that what is not easy to summon, especially in this market, as you talked about, right? Like, oh, like, you know, should I be in sales? Should I be selling dreams? That takes courage. Mm -hmm. But I hope for listeners out there that you're taking the tools that Dan has given us with NLP and that gives you a heightened confidence to summon the courage it will take for you to be successful. Dan Story, a fellow Dan, a fellow podcast host and director of sales training at Finastra. It's been a real treat having you on the podcast. Thanks so much. Danny, Dan. this has been a whole bunch of fun. If I can just ask, I'm going to one last request. Like This is an amazing Please. application in sales. Right? This has amazing application in sales. 
but it works so cross-contextually. Take this, like have conversations in life. Go and meet people on the street. Go and say hello. Like go and help people. Just try and instigate conversations as much as possible. This world has got crazy going on all the time. Let's just, as salespeople, our job is to make connections. Like let's just go out, put smiles on people's faces. Just try this thing out in multiple contexts. Just think of it as practice. That's what I'm going to say. The rally cry for us NLP crusaders. Go forth and NLP. Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks, Danny. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Reveal. If you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high-performance sales teams, head on over to gong.io. And if you like what you heard, go ahead and give us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you may listen.